0: Hello and welcome to The Politics of Peterborough, the podcast where we chat with the people who have been elected to make decisions about our city and those who try to influence them. I'm your host, Dave Adcock. This month's conversation is a two-parter, with the second half being released next week, so make sure you subscribe to get it as soon as it's out. Don't forget, if you have any questions you'd like me to put to future guests, or if you have any feedback on the episodes, please send us a tweet, direct messages on either Twitter or Facebook at politicspboro, or send an email to politics.peterborough at hotmail.com. On with part one. Our guest for this episode is an award winning journalist who spent 27 years working in TV and radio, from Hereford Radio in the 90s, Radio 5 and BBC TV in the noughties, to BBC Radio Cambridgeshire Breakfast presenter. He now runs his own company, PS Media, focusing on media communications, marketing, PR and video production described by former Peterborough MP Stuart Jackson as the consummate broadcasting and media professional with a unique skill and a flair born of experience... Is that what he said? ...knowledge of the industry. (laughs) Paul Stainton, welcome to The Politics of Peterborough.
1: Thank you very much. I'm not sure Stuart would say that right now.
0: (laughs) I took that off your LinkedIn page, so I'm hoping he said it.
1: He's he's been very gracious in the past. I mean, to to be fair, we absolutely slaughtered him over his expenses on the radio, and at the time he wasn't quite so generous. But he was generous when I left... um, Radio Cambridgeshire. Maybe he wouldn't be quite so generous now
0: because I, <laughs> I tend to pick up on the things that his, um, his cabal get into. So, you went to school in East Yorkshire. How did you end up on the airways in Peterborough? It's very
1: important you said East Yorkshire because a lot of people would call it humberside. Um Those signs were always scrubbed out by people. I don't know who they were, but it wasn't me. Um, yeah, Yorkshire was very, um, was very important in my life, really. I mean, I, I grew up in pit villages um, in South Yorkshire. I was born in Ghoul, we moved around pit villages with my dad's job, so we had something like, I don't know, 12 or 13 houses before I left home, um, I think I had 10 schools. So it was it was n- not easy, it was tough, money was tight, you know, people talk about poor, um, we were poor, I used to I used to sell my dad's produce from the allotment around the village, you know, and add half a pea here and half a pea there and make some money for myself. Um, but we had no carpets, you know, you know, no central eating, all that sort of stuff, Um I suppose, for me, it was just about, I want to be better than this. I want to do better than this. I want to get out of this. And I think that's what drove me. I got a couple of O-levels, somehow, uh, which, considering I was a class joker and spent half my school career stood in a corridor, uh, somehow I got a couple of O-levels and got myself a job at British Aerospace, which I absolutely hated. I stuck it for two years, and then... So I I got into mobile DJing, I got into... um, Hospital radio, and from there um, I started nightclub DJing across the country after well, compared to Summer Show in Bridlington. Then I went um, DJing across the country, acid house raves, uh, nightclubs in the north, um, Leeds, Nottingham, and then ended up moving to Peterborough in 1989 when somebody offered me a, a truckload of money to come and DJ at Shanghai Sam's. And that's how I got here. I started doing a bit of radio again and loved it, and I, for a year, Rang up every day at Herald FM to a guy called Adrian Crooks, who used to be program manager, and Andy Gillis, who ran it. And for a year, I rang them and said, I, I could do a bit of radio, I think I might be all right. And they just thought, nightclub DJ. No, 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 no. But eventually, I got a dance gig on a Friday night, and I was doing that for about three months on the radio. And I, I'm a great one for preparation, as my former work colleagues would tell you, I get very boring about preparation. Um, And I was in very early to do the dance show, and Kev Lawrence was doing drive time on Herald at the time, didn't turn up for his shift. He got a job on the South Coast, didn't tell them, just didn't turn up. And they said, you can do it. And I was never off the radio then for seven or eight years until I worked in TV. So from there, went to be sports editor at Radio Cambridgeshire, Um, four years doing that was in enough interviews with Barry Fry to let me know that I needed to leave. Got a job as a producer at BBC Five Live in London. Did that for about three years and then they set up a TV arm of Five Live, if you like, for BBC Sport to do the news and became a correspondent there. So I believe I'm the only nightclub DJ ever to appear as a TV sports correspondent on the 6 o'clock news. So what was it that
0: brought you back to Peterborough after heading off to the big lights in London?
1: My daughter. Um, We didn't think we could have children, so I was in my thirties living this amazing life, travelling all over the world, never at home really, Um, my wife had a big job as well, and then one day my wife said, I'm late, and I said, for what? Uh, Honestly, I just literally said, for what? And she said, no I'm late, what? So I had a choice to make, I I could continue to do what I did, which was um, pack my bags on a Sunday, because we covered Champions League games, so I'd be away Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday somewhere. Sounds brilliant. It's not. I'd come back Thursday, Friday I'd be at a Premier League press conference. Saturday I'd be absolutely knackered. Sunday I'd be packing my bags and doing it again. So I had a decision to make. I, and at the time, they were looking to sort of lose a couple of people off the team. And I just put my hand up and said, "I'll take the hit." And they went, "No, no, no, no. We know who's leaving. It's not you." Which is nice. But I wanted to do it to see my daughter grow up. And I've got a fantastic relationship with my daughter. She's like my best friend. And I never regret a single day. In fact, I'd, I went away before Christmas to do something for the Ministry of Defence, get some training. And it's the first time I think I've been away for more than two nights. And it absolutely broke my heart. And she was crying her eyes out. And I thought, I, I, I definitely made the right decision. So I came back here, my wife had a business, which she lost in the banking crisis in 2008, so then I went back into radio and ran the Peterborough office, which no longer exists, for the
0: BBC. And so you came back as as the breakfast presenter? Well, I came
1: back as a manager, actually. I came back uh, to manage the Peterborough office and show the team how to make radio, and they were struggling, their figures weren't great on the Peterborough breakfast show at the time. Um, and within six months, the guy that presented it, Andy Burrows, decided he didn't want to do it anymore. Maybe... <laughs> Maybe I'm not that good a manager. I don't know, or maybe I'm a great manager. And he left, and the management at Radio Radiochemistry I'd filled in, and they said, "Could you manage the office and present the show?" I said, "Well, it's a bit much." I said, "But I'll do it because I loved it and it was great." So we did the Peterborough Breakfast Show for probably two and a half, three years, and we improved the audience from I think 16,000 to 35. And then they decided they were going to make cutbacks at the BBC, so they were going to. Lose the split breakfast, which is a huge mistake. And then I, I did the My breakfast show, and we, I think, we increased the listenership there to sort of eighty-five, ninety thousand, which is actually more than listening to Radio Cambridge as a whole. Now we had more listening to that one show. Um, and then when Andy Harper left mid-morning, I decided I didn't want to get up at four a.m. anymore, and I did the mid-morning show, and you know we improved the audiences there. So all in all, it was fantastic.
0: And then about five years ago, you, you took the decision to to finish. Yeah,
1: that d- side of things. Yeah, I did. I mean, part of me th- thought I'd done as much as I could do, although I didn't really want to leave. Um, and it was my decision to leave. But it was all, all around the time that IR35 had come along for people that were freelance. And, you know, the BBC doesn't pay very much. I was earning £40,000 to get up at God knows what time. Um, and the only way I, you know, at my age, at 50... That wasn't enough to, you know, I was used to a certain level of, of income and living. So the only way I could make it up was do things outside of the BBC, which they were perfectly happy about for a while. And then all of a sudden they did a deal with the taxman and said, everybody, at IR35, everybody self-employed. You're going to be treated as employed, taxed at source. So my net income from the BBC would have been about £30,000. Uh, which was less than my producer was on. <laughs> yeah, I've got 20 years of knowledge and experience, and I was superior. Um, so there was that, and also the management, I, I put a complaint in. I won't mention names, but I put a complaint in for, against one of the managers for bullying and harassment of not just me, of many other people there. So the, the, at the time, I, I think I was glad to get out, really, um, because I wasn't particularly well supported by the BBC. That's all I can say. It sort of soured my relationship, really. I have a lot to be thankful to the BBC for. Without the BBC, I wouldn't have had the life and career I've had, but they treated me pretty poorly, to be fair, and I wouldn't have treated them like that. And I still don't. I still think of myself as part of it, but I'm not. Do you miss it now? Yeah, every day. I miss that. (laughs) That microphone. I miss the audience. I miss people interacting. I miss talking, not to the public, I miss talking with the public. I miss them ringing in and the voices. And you know, The, the listener was, was always front and central of what we did. They drove the show. We would set up the first hour and nothing else. Everything else would come from either me and the stuff I said in between the records, my producer, Ben Stevenson, brilliant at just taking a nugget of what I said and moving a conversation on. You never knew where the show was going to go because the second hour, we'd book guests judging by what listeners had said or which way the conversation had gone, which is why it was so organic
0: and, and why our figures were, to be fair, pretty, pretty darn good. Now, working for the BBC, you'll have spent a long time keeping your political views to yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that
1: a challenge? Not really, because um, despite what some of the more right-wing of our political friends in Petersburg might say, um, my political views are straight down the middle. I, I believe in capitalism, but I believe in looking after people. I don't believe in capitalism at all costs. I suppose I'm I'm a Tony Blair Conservative, you know? I'm probably a Keir Starmer Conservative, if you know what I mean. I'm in the middle, but I'm not Liberal, because some of their policies, sorry Nick Sanford, are a little daft. But I appreciate a lot of their policies. I appreciate a lot of the Green policies. I appreciate most of the Conservative policies and most of Labour's policies. I'm somewhere in the middle. You know, I'm not at the sides, you know, and... Since I left the BBC, I have felt I needed to speak up for people and you know, hold power to account because we, we've got less and less journalism in Peterborough, so you know, my voice is, is, is heard by quite a lot of people. Um, and I get accused of, of being some sort of lefty. Well, if you speak to people on the left, they'll just laugh you out of town. You know, they, they know the hard time I gave Lisa Forbes, Fiona Onasanya, and all the Labour councillors in Peterborough. I haven't shifted my politics. Some people may have shifted theirs way to the right, to follow their mates, Liz and Boris, you know, but not me. I'm, I'm down the middle.
0: Have you ever affiliated with a specific party at any point? Never been a member of no. a
1: political party, no. And I wouldn't, because then i lose my voice. You know, no, no end of people have asked me to stand. I'm not kidding. Even last week I got a phone call saying, are you going to stand in the local elections? I said no, because once I do, my voice, and, and I think, because the BBC has is, is sort of left Peterborough, and it still covers... Peterborough and the stories in Peterborough, but it it's how can I describe it? They wash the window, but they don't do the inside of the house. You know, it's just window shopping, some of the stories they cover in Peterborough. It's not they don't understand the history of it, the integrity of it, the the depth of it. And and this, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for the reports on the Peterborough Telegraph, because there aren't many of them. You know, there's less and less and less. But they don't do journalism like they used to. There's no in-depth investigations. So I feel like sometimes, for the people without a voice, I am the voice. And that might sound big-headed, it might sound ridiculous, but I just try and hold a light to ridiculousness and hold power to account where I can. And at my own cost, no doubt, because I'm sure I've lost work and contracts because of it, particularly at local councils.
0: We'll get more in-depth on the the local media situation in a bit, but I want to start by looking at the national media. There's a growing movement to, quote, (laughs) defund the BBC, move it to a subscription model, make money from adverts, etc. Can the BBC in its current guise survive? Not in its current guise, but it's incredibly important. Whatever
1: these people say about the BBC, and notwithstanding everything I've said, The BBC is the most important thing when it comes to the media in this country. It is absolutely paramount that it stays free from political control, which is why Richard Sharp should have resigned last week, and why the government should have no say in the running of the BBC or the appointment of its chairman. It should be completely independent of any government, because the job that the vast majority of people do, for not a lot of money, by the way, is one to bring you the news that is is balanced, clear, and down the middle, and show all sides of the argument. And believe me, I've worked in national newsrooms, local newsrooms. People work hard at the BBC, locally especially, for very little money. And without that voice in the media world, you're left with GB News. Wow. I mean, is... Is it a joke? I don't know. Is, is, it, is, it, is somebody having a laugh? Are people taking it seriously? It is just appalling, appalling. And then you'll end up with a situation they've got in America where nobody trusts anything. And you end up with polarisation on both sides of the argument, nobody talking to each other. I mean, I have a guy on my Facebook page I've known for years. He was a listener to the radio shows that I did. He's a true blue right-wing conservative. And we argue all the time. And that's fine. That's fine. It's when you get to the point where you don't argue and you just start attacking each other. Um, So, yes, the BBC is very, very important. Can it survive in its present form? Probably not. It probably has to slim down. Slimming local radio is not the way to do it. That's a disastrous move, I think, because local radio is your front door. It's where your stories start. It's where your journalists get taught. And the next generation of journalists, you don't want them just coming from university. You want them to be people like me who've had real-life experiences... Um, Very few people I work with, to be fair, had that. They were all from university, and I think it's really important they get more local people that have got working-class experiences and working-class backgrounds. And I don't know how you fund it. That's the other thing. You know, there will have to be some sort of funding. Whether a licence fee is the right way to go, I don't see how that's sustainable going forward. I don't. But... You get a lot for your money. I don't care what you say, you get a lot for your money when you work out what it costs you for Netflix and Amazon. And I know it's a choice, but you still get a heck of a lot for your
0: money. In our last episode, Councillor Samford stated that the media, and particularly the BBC, are impartial between the Conservatives and Labour, but they don't give the Lib Dems the same opportunities. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Win some more seats. That's
1: all I would say to Nick. You get, you get the coverage that your, your, your seats deserve. You know, if, if, you, if you win so many seats in Peterborough, you, you can have so much coverage in the local elections. So, you know, the fault is not with the BBC. It's with the Liberal Democrats, Nick. Bless him. He was out today in his nice cap. Did you see a picture of that? Nice, lovely
0: cap. Well done, Nick. Does the media have... Or does it have to take any blame for the current political situation in this country? <sighs> no.
1: No, I don't think so. I think there are certain factions that would like that to be true. But at the end of the day, the media can only report what has actually happened, unless you're GB news, of course. But essentially, I think the BBC, in the, in the main, have got the reporting right. You know, it, it's the politicians who are ridiculous and have been ridiculous. They're the ones that have made themselves look stupid, can't answer questions, promised us an oven-ready Brexit when, you know, the oven hadn't even been fitted. You know, mind switched on. You know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Now, today, as we record, Rishi's begging with the ERG to let him do a deal on Northern Ireland. Otherwise, we'll have another prime minister, probably. You know, it's just a cabal of vested interests and ridiculousness and, in, in some instances, dodgy dealing. You know, some of the PPE contracts and the, the links to politicians, the Russian money. You know, is that the fault of the media? The way Boris ran the country and his parties whilst we were all locked down, fault of the media? Don't think so. Liz Trust almost bankrupting everybody's pension in this country in a week. Is that the media's fault? Quasi quatting? Eh? Put it all on red. You know, what the hell? How can you blame the media? But it's good deflection, isn't it? You know, I teach media training, I know what deflection is, and that is it. Deflect, blame. Even in the face of absolute cast-iron fact deflect attack when i post things on facebook sometimes just holding a light up i think i posted something about we'll maybe talk about the hydrotherapy pool later i posted about something when they said it was closing and paul bristow peter was mp went on twitter and said well don't worry we're going to build a shiny new one with neil moda hold on a minute. You know, the reason it's closing is because your government cut the grant to People City Council. So man who burns down house helps to rebuild it. And that got me blocked. But it's a fair point. But then there must be this right wing WhatsApp group because Stuart Jackson and everybody else were on my Facebook page attacking me personally. Not the story, not the people involved in it, me personally. So once they're found out in a lie or some sort of deception or, you know, ridiculousness, they attack the man, not the ball. And that's what they're doing with the media.
0: Let's take a look at the state of local media. Firstly, the BBC have announced plans to, quote, modernise local services, end quote, <laughs> in radio. Uh, this includes maintaining Radio Cambridge's shows from 6am to 2pm, uh, Monday to Friday. From 2pm to 6pm, it would then be a shared service with three counties, radio, Norfolk and Suffolk. And then from 6 till 10pm, that will also add in Essex and Northants to the mix. What's that going to mean for Peterborough? Well, already
1: Peterborough's underserved by the BBC's own admission. And that's with BBC Radio Cambridge being local. Uh, the BBC BBC's underserved because 98% of people who work for Radio Cambridge live in Cambridge. When, as I mentioned earlier, when I ran the Peterborough office, we had seven, eight journalists live in Peterborough, knew Peterborough, knew the people in Peterborough, knew the stories, knew how to get to them. You know, we broke stories before the P- Peterborough Telegraph. The editor of the Peterborough Telegraph literally the other week said to me, we had your show on every morning, and we'd have a board ticking off things you got we hadn't got, or stories you'd taken on in a different direction. And he said, "We don't do that anymore. We don't. We even have radio cameras on in the morning because it, it is so it's so lightweight the coverage of Peterborough. And I, I'm not having a go at my former colleagues here because they've not been helped by awful management in in that place." Um, almost W1A management if I could describe some of the things that went on there it's just I mean <laughs> the manager's greatest quote was even when you've got a fantastic story say so we'll do this story tomorrow, it's brilliant it's brilliant yeah we'll do that angle we'll talk to that person we'll do it this way we'll do that and even though it was the f- obvious fantastic story to do the manager would wander across in a sort of John Cleese funny walk it's that tall awkward gangly gait uh, and say I'm just playing devil's advocate no 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 There's no reason to play devil's advocate. This is obviously the story to do. Yeah, but mm, people in Cambridge, will they care? Well, no, but we'll broaden it out. We'll make the story travel across to Cambridge because, you know, if if it's a footpath that's been dug up in Peterborough, there must be one that happened in Cambridge at some point. We'll make it travel, you know, across the county. But that doesn't happen anymore. Um, So not having an office in Peterborough, not having staff apart from a couple that, that live here, you know, really doesn't help the people who are trying to broadcast to the people of Peterborough and Peterborough is a big city, it's the conurbation I wrote a column the other week saying these listening figures came out and 91% of people in Cambridgeshire do not listen to Radio Cambridgeshire which is astonishing so I, I said move it to Peterborough concentrate in Peterborough, there's 200,000 people live here Sweet where, you, that's where stories are cravat wearing tweed trousered Cambridge folk don't listen to Radio Cambridgeshire they listen to Radio 4 so you're wasting your time the Fens and Peterborough, they'll listen to Radio Cambridgeshire if you get the stories right and if you interact with them If, you know, if you talk about what they're talking
0: about. That was your piece uh, for camsnews.co.uk. Yeah. uh, And in that you suggested that, quote, BBC radio is more important than ever and should be invested in rather than cut back, end Mm. quote. Are the falling listening figures because of managerial ineptitude or because of changing listening tastes and habits, such as moving to more on-demand services such as podcasts?
1: Uh, Both. In, In Cambridge, I would say both. There are places around the country where good output and good management are managing to hold the listening figures, but it's not helped because the person in charge of local radio, somebody called Chris Burns, insists on this mad music policy, you know, insists on attracting 25-, 35-year-olds. When the audience is there, you know, Boom Radio has doubled its size in the last year and a bit. You know, they're aiming at 65-year-olds. Well, local radio's audience is 45 to 75. That's what you should focus on. There's a big drive in the BBC to, to get younger viewers, younger listeners, and that is great. Of course you need them. That's your next generation. But people gravitate to local radio eventually. I mean, I didn't know what Radio chemistry was before I applied for the job. I was at Harrow FM. Heroin FM. Boom, 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 Still DJing in nightclubs. You know? And I wanted to get out because they were bringing cue cards in. we have been taken over. Somebody said, there's a job at Radio Cambridgeshire. I said, where's that? I don't know anything about it. And you don't want to get back to that point, you know, where um, BBC Local Radio becomes the preserve of you know, just a few people, you know, stuck in the muds. But there are, there's an audience there. We had an audience. Yes, some of them have gone on to do other things in the morning, but we had 140,000 people listening to Radio Cambridgeshire. It's now at 77. That's almost half in five years. They haven't all gone. They're not all watching Lorraine. You know, they're not all online. You know, buying something from Argos—it's just not true. It's a fallacy. So get the music right, get the output right, get the stories right, do the news right, entertain, educate, and inform. That's what Lord Rees said. It's always the same, but not if you're aiming at the wrong audience. So is it managed decline by the BBC management so that they can have an excuse to close it? I would have said no five years ago. But I speak to people still at the BBC now who think it's true. Think they're quite happy. Because it won't be local radio. Once you lose that afternoon show, it's regional radio. Then it's what? What's the point? If you regionalise two till six, then you say, Well, we only need a breakfast show really and then three years down the road, it's a waste of time. Nobody's listening to it. Well, yeah, because of what you've done. It's a top of the pops thing. Put it on against Coronation Street and there's the your argument. No no viewers. Well of course not. Put it back on Thursday night, still be 7000000 million.
0: We've also, in the last couple of months, seen the Western section of Look East closed. Are we going to end up in a a news black hole? Well, I think we have been, really, since we lost
1: the Peterborough office, the BBC office in Peterborough. Once that commitment... I mean, we lost it a bit when we lost the Peterborough breakfast show, but we still had a Peterborough office, so we still had journalists working out of the city. I mean, when I joined in '94 to be sports editor, there were two radio-slash-TV journalists working in Peterborough. One was Alison Dawes, one was Anthony Bartram. And they knew everything that was going on in the city. And we've we've gone from having two radio-slash-TV journalists to nobody. So you end up with uh, the big stories get reported now and again, particularly Look East. The loss of Look East West from Cambridge, you're not going to get stories every day about Peterborough on Look East because they've, they've got Lower Stuff to cover and Norwich and, you know... Stone Market and oh, you know Milton Keynes and you know by the time you've gone round the county, only the really really big stories or the special reports or you know are going to get mentioned. Your everyday stuff that's important to people in Peterborough will not feature, and it's a fallacy to say it will. And they say, oh, we're going to have these hubs, you know, digital hubs where you have news of Peterborough and blah. Well, they're newspapers, aren't they? So you're treading on newspapers' toes, and they'll be written by people saying Cambridge who don't know Peterborough. So you'll get Oundle Road or the, the, river, the River Nen, as we used to get on the traffic and travel when you had a new guy on. You'll get all that now to Oondal Road, you know.
0: Peterborough has seen turnout in recent local elections down at 30%, and it's heading ever lower. Some wards as low as 20%. Do you think a lack of a critical media plays a part in that? I think it does. I think, when you think back to when we were on the radio, certainly Peterborough Breakfast Show, we
1: would cover each of the wards that would be up for election. So we would have conversations, we would have round tables. So probably a week before, two weeks before, the elections in May. I can't remember how many wards are up for grabs this time around. Was, was it eight, nine, something like that?
0: Uh, there's 20. Oh, there's 20. Yeah.
1: Right, so you, you'd, you'd focus on each ward and you'd, you'd probably pick the ones that would be most hotly contested and you'd get the representatives in. That won't happen because it's too parochial now for Radio Cambridgeshire. Um, which is a real shame because what the Peterborough Breakfast Show allowed us to do at the BBC was really drill down and really you know, give Peterborough the media it deserves. I mean, there, there are stories going begging, left, right and centre. There's no investigative journalism happening in Peterborough. You know, if there'd been an investigative journalist in Peterborough at the moment, they would have drilled down on the sale of the market. They would have drilled down on the hydrotherapy pool sale. Which didn't happen, which makes no sense. There's so much going on in the city that makes no sense, you know, that deserves further investigation, that doesn't get it. So, yeah, we're in a black hole.
0: Have you ever considered going into politics yourself?
1: Yeah, many times. Many times. Last week I got a phone call. I have. Would I like to do it? Would I like to make a difference? Do I think I could make a difference? Yes. But if I did, one, my wife would divorce me. Two, I would lose that voice, that independent voice. And I think part of me, when I came off the radio, I I thought, that's it. I'm never going to do anything again. But then you realise 10,000 people follow you on social media and they're still contacting you. Could you you, you say this? Can you highlight that? Have you heard this? And you think, well, I've got a bit of a responsibility. Just because I I had a a media outlet, I still sort of have an outlet on social media to represent the people who don't have a voice. So it it sounds a bit grandiose, and I'm not trying to be grandiose about it, because I try not to comment, I try not to go on social media, I try not to write columns, but then I just get so consumed that I feel I need to have a voice for the people that don't have one. So... If I went into local politics, I wouldn't be able to have that same voice. Those people then wouldn't be represented in the same way. Lights perhaps wouldn't be shined on things in, in the same way. It's a fine balancing act because if you're in the local council, then you can bring things up. And it, it's, but you, it's very difficult to make a difference. You could always stand as an independent. You could, but you can't, how do you make a difference?
0: Well, I suppose it's the, it's the inside track of mm. behind-closed-doors conversations. There is that, yeah,
1: but it's very difficult to get elected because, you know, there's a Conservative Party machine, there's a Labour Party machine, it costs money. Um, are there are many excuses not to do it. I'm sure people listening to this are going, Phew, excuses. But it, it's not that. It, it, it's also the fact that when you're in the council chamber, if you've still got... 18 or 19 Conservatives. If you've still got 14 or 15 Labour part, how do you get anywhere near power to make things different? To do that, you've got to compromise your ideals. You've got to compromise what got you elected in the first place. So, yeah, I thought about it. I had a phone call last week from somebody saying, "Please stand." No, not gonna. I'm going to. I'm going to keep you, doing what you, I do. You think it's a never say never or just no, never? Not, not? never. No, I mean, I mean, I was tempted to stand for MP when Mike Green stood. Because I just thought it was ridiculous, the whole Brexit saga. And I hate to say I've been proven correct, but you know, um, I just felt like somebody needed to stand up and say, what are you doing, guys? What are you doing, Peterborough?
0: What are you waiting for? Now you've got it. Enjoy. Do you think councillors are a role anybody can do?
1: I, th- I, I don't know. I think of Charlie Swift. I mean, I was good friends with Charlie Swift. and I think of what Charlie said when I last interviewed him probably a couple of years before he died, bless him. And he said, they're a waste of time. You might as well get rid of all of them. They've got no power. They can't make any difference. They can't do anything. It's only those in charge that can do anything. And that's where I keep coming back to the fact that what Charlie Swift said is is probably true. And yet, I mean, it'd be great if, if if there was 15 people like me that were passionate and knowledgeable about who, the why, the when, the what, and the history of the city, what people needed and what people don't need... I, I, would, I would say, yes, yeah, stand, stand, stand. If we could get 15 independents on the council, then you think, well, hold on, we can make a difference. Is it likely to happen, though? I don't know, because people in Peterborough just seem to vote the same way. Whatever happens, which is unbelievable. But I think apathy, you know, people in Peterborough are genuinely apathetic. You know, you look at Peterborough United, you know, there's 200,000 people living in the city, five, 6,000 people go and watch. Twas always thus. I've been there. Tuesday nights, Rochdale, back of the stand, John Still,
0: mm, not great. It's quite easy to sit on the sideline complaining about decisions yep. that are being made and not putting yourself forward for it, though, isn't it? That's, that's
1: a criticism, and I'm happy to take it on the chin, you know, and, and people make that criticism. And I can only refer you back to, to what I've said, is that decisions are made, and sometimes they're odd, weird, strange, and, and somebody needs to say something. So whether people want it or not, they may come a day when people say, well, you shut up, Paul, and go away. And if that day comes, I will. But I, I get lots of support for what I say. A lot of people don't have the same voice that I have. And you have to be responsible with it. You can't just challenge everything and moan about everything. And I try not to. I try and be positive where I see positivity, but equally where I see power maybe being abused or power being misused... I try and shine a light on it It's not out of malice I'm not sat here thinking oh, I hope Peterborough burns and crashes I want Peterborough to be fantastic Brilliant, vibrant You know, We're sat in the university building here The assistant principal I've known for years You know, He's going to drive this forward Because he knows the city He's got his, the city's best interests at heart Do I think the people in this city Have got the city's best interests at heart right now? No, it's about power and ambition for some of them It's nothing to do with people Because if it was they wouldn't make the decisions they make me, I've got the best interest of the city at heart. I want to see Bridge Street thriving. Don't tell me footfall's gone up, though. Because you're talking rubbish, Steve Allen. It's just not true. It's, you Press release it all you want. You know, I've took the pictures, been down there. People are not stupid. And I know there's this thing at the moment with particularly right-wing politicians that if you keep repeating a false narrative, people will believe it. So when I see stuff like that, when it says, footfall's gone up, What? What's a bric-a-brac stall, a coffee store and a veg stall? I don't think so. I hope it does. And if you want to talk, I've got some ideas how we can make it better. In fact, probably if you talk to the university people as well, they may have some ideas as well. In fact, there's probably 30 people in the city who if you actually spoke to them, instead of issuing terrible press releases, they can help you make it better and can make it, make it busier and can help improve the city.
0: In the recent public consultation for the council's budget, a recurring theme on the responses was that councillors should be paid less and work harder. Should we be moving away from the current model to one where councillors are full-time and pay them accordingly?
1: I'd get rid of them all. to be fair. I'd just bring in chief executives to run it, professional people that can run a city properly. Um, and when it comes to decisions that you know, affect people's health, well-being, there should be... There should be some representatives from, from around the city. But I think, I don't know, I, I, I'm increasingly just think a bunch of amateurs trying to run a city. You know, for what end? For what gain? You know, are they in it for people? What if you got somebody to run it who was a professional? Just
0: let them get on with it. But who who then has the... Uh, ultimate decision on whether they're doing a good job or not?
1: Well, maybe you have a maybe you have a... I don't know. <laughs> I've not thought about this. Well, maybe... That's just come out of my head. My producer will be saying, no, no, don't go ahead with that. Um, no, I'd, maybe you have a public panel that's voted for... Maybe you have a representative from each area of the city, a bit like councillors, uh, <laughs> and maybe they hold the executive to account. But actually, if you've got professional people running the city like a business and, and they need to make it thrive they might make better decisions, you know. They perhaps wouldn't
0: close a market, sell it off, before they'd even built a new one. Do you know what I mean? But, I mean, a lot of the current councillors are business people. They have have Mm. run businesses, they own businesses, so isn't that kind of the same thing? What you're saying is it's just the wrong business people are currently making the decision.
1: Well, maybe they run businesses and then their ambitions and their ideals align with some of the decisions they're making. I don't know. Maybe that. If we take that out of it, and the person running it is just running it for the good of the city rather than any business that they may have that might benefit in future years, who knows? Then maybe that would be better.
0: But that's what I say. So maybe a, a full-time with no outside interests mm. council. Oh yeah, would work better. Yeah, yeah, and I, I
1: think you know you either go that way or you pay councillors a heck of a lot more and they can't have second jobs or businesses. And the same with MPs. I'd pay MPs two hundred thousand pound a year. And you're not allowed to take any donations. You can't have um, a healthcare company that's bidding for American healthcare contracts, you know, and, and silently trying to, you know, privatise the NHS, or any business like that. You can't have any outside interests apart from your MP's role. Yeah, brilliant. I'd slim it down a bit. I'd have 400 rather than 600. But, you know, you understand, they're doing it for the right reasons then. At the minute, I just think there's so many of them in it for what they can get.
0: And that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Paul Stainton for joining us. You can follow him on Twitter at Paul Stainton. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts so that you get each episode as soon as it's released. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at politicspboro. Please let us know what you thought of the episode. Also, big thank you to the university and in particular Vice Principal Jamie Jones this month for letting us record the episode on campus. If you have any suggestions as to who you'd like to hear on the show or any questions you'd like us to put to our guests, you can email us at politics.peterborough at hotmail.com. This episode of The Politics of Peterborough was created, hosted, recorded and edited by me. We'll see you next time.